Luke chapter 21 today, we come to the end of Luke's record of the public teaching of Jesus at the temple in this, the last week of his life. And thus, expectedly, these are weighty words from Jesus, words of great sobriety, words of warning to them, to us, to all. Hear then the word of the Lord beginning at verse 5, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come where the, when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people." They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. 
Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mountain called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Keep a weather eye on the horizon. Let's pray together. Lord God, these are difficult words. They are ominous words. And we pray that as we look at them this morning, you would fill our hearts with an appropriate awareness of who you are and that which awaits us and all humanity. Lord Jesus, teach us today through the power of your Spirit working through your Word. We pray in your name. Amen. The comment that is made that starts off this section of teaching seems innocent enough to us. As we compare it with the, the parallels in Mark and Matthew, it appears that they're walking around, perhaps into, perhaps out of the temple area. And one of the disciples or several of the disciples are speaking together, and they make the comment, look at this magnificent temple. By all accounts, it really was an extraordinary temple, and if you were so inclined, you can read up on the, the structure of the temple itself at this time. But it was extraordinary, and so they say, well, look at these noble stones. They're huge. How did they get in place? Look at these grand designs that are here, all of this ornate stuff that is surrounding us. It's impressive. Now, honestly, we've all made comments like that, right? I mean, you might have even made them about our little church here, but if you've had opportunity to do any traveling at all, you've been around the world and you've been in parts of the world where you've no doubt seen structures. Perhaps they are cathedrals that exist or, or pyramids or monuments of some type that you're looking at them and they just are incredible. And you look at those things and say, this is marvelous, this is, this is remarkable that this place is so beautiful or powerful or, or, or breathtaking, whatever it is, and that's what they're saying about the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus takes this rather simple statement, this rather commonplace observation that we make when we're looking at something like this as an opportunity to retrain the eyes of humanity, to refocus the way that we look at the world and the way that we look at the things that are around us. Remember that just prior to this, what we were talking about last week, Jesus has been talking about and criticizing the appearance of the scribes, the way they looked, the way they looked on the outside, and what people thought of them based on the way that they looked and the way that they deported themselves. And, and, and Jesus says that everybody was noticing how the rich people were giving in the temple. But Jesus had different eyes. What he looked at in the midst of all of that grandeur or that apparent grandeur that was going on of the people was the widow, 
the one who was giving out of her poverty, essentially giving all she had, even though that amount, relatively speaking, wasn't very great. And he points to that and is able to say, this is the person that you should be looking at and looking for as your example. And when they make the comment about the stones in light of how Jesus has been just talking about who you should be really looking at, Jesus uses that as an opportunity. He uses it as an opportunity to say for them, as for the things you see, verse 6, as for the things that you are seeing right now, I've got to tell you about them, and I've got to tell you about them because the comments that you're making reflect the fact that you're not seeing them correctly. And when he comes to the end of this passage, this is the way that it's bracketed. Watch. Stay awake. It's about seeing. That's what's going on here. Jesus wants us to see correctly, to perceive the world aright. Keep a weather eye on the horizon. Don't just focus on this earth, this world, this day. Don't just focus on the things that you've got to do this week, on your work, on your retirement plan, on getting your home in proper shape and getting the kids the education. All of these things exist, but you cannot focus only on those things because an incredible storm is brewing. And you have got to be aware of the storm that is brewing on the horizon. So let me consider the text in that way. The coming storm, anchors in the storm, and actions for the storm. Jesus does not try to hold back news of this impending storm. Critical, though, is what he says about the impressions of the storm, the impressions of the day. The end will not be at once. That's there in verse 9. It's not going to take place all at once, which is the way you tend to think about it, Jesus instructing them. But don't think about it that way, because there's going to be people who are going to say, I'm the one. There are going to be people who say, the time is now, the time is at hand. Don't listen to them. It's not going to be all at once. There is an end storm. There is a storm to end all storms, and it is described for us in verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. That's a serious storm that is on the horizon when Jesus comes back on the cloud in that power and glory. Every person, later down in the text, everyone on the earth is going to have to face that day, face that final storm, face that day of judgment. But in anticipation of that day and in preparing for that day, there are a series of prior storms that come before the last storm. There will be wars and tumults, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, terrors, persecutions, hatred, desolation of Jerusalem, and if that's not enough, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming in the world, people in perplexity, signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, and the earth, distress in the nations. That's a lot going on in preparation for the final storm. Allow me to suggest for us in this passage today that, that, that Luke has for us and, and Matthew and Mark also have it, three groupings of storms 
that Jesus is discussing. The first grouping is this, specific. Specific. Much of what Jesus is talking about here is going to be fulfilled in the near term. It is going to be fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So in 68 AD, there would be a revolt where the Jews would revolt against the Romans, try and overthrow the Romans, overthrow their rule, reestablish their own place in Jerusalem. It will be unsuccessful, and the Romans will come in, and they'll destroy Jerusalem. They'll set fire to the city. They'll set fire to the temple. They'll destroy the temple, knocking the stones one from the other. And much of this, particularly verses 20 through 24, are focused on exactly what is happening then, an instruction in terms of what to do that is found in 20 to 24 applies particularly is what are you going to do when Jerusalem falls? It's near term. It's specific. It's not unclear. We're not wondering what is he talking about? When is it going to take place? We're not wondering from our perspective anyway. 70 AD is when this took place. And Jesus makes it clear that this just isn't random. It's not just happening. It's not just coincidence that it is taking place right now. Rather, it is the judgment of God. It is what he said when he came into the city. When he came into the city, he said, Jerusalem is going to be judged for failing to know the time of the visitation. The prophets had come, one after another, and now Jesus, the great prophet himself, had come into the city, and they had failed to recognize the time of their visitation. They will be judged for their rejection of the prophets. They will be judged for their rejection of the Son. But in addition to the specific storm, Jesus also speaks of universalistic storms that will take place. The broad category of awful things that take place all around the world. And, and that's the list of the other things I was talking about. I'm not going to read that category of things again, earthquakes, famines, and the like. They happened in the early church. In fact, in one sense, Jesus and Luke are preparing us for what, what you would see in Acts. So if you took the book of Acts and you took this list of things and you then opened up Acts, which is the second half of Luke, and you kind of looked at this, you would say, oh, wait a minute, these things are being fulfilled right now in the early church. But the reality is that these things Jesus is, are, is describing here happen in every generation. Is there really a time, is there really a people sometime in history who couldn't say that these things were taking place in their day? For example, us living in our day. We could look at these lists of things that are going on and say, surely, this is the generation. Surely this is the time, much as they would have said in 70 AD, much as they would have said under Roman persecution soon to follow that. It provides us with at least two lessons, many lessons, but I'm only going to highlight two of them right now. The first lesson that that gives to us is that this is a sad world, that there's a lot of awful stuff in this world. Don't get comfortable in it. Don't just think this is the way it is and the way it's always going to be. It's a sad world. Don't get comfortable in it. And secondly, the second lesson, because of these distresses that are described for us, is that the end could come at any time. The reality is that every generation can point to those signs and say it could be coming now, and that is the right way to handle the Scripture. It is the right way to handle Jesus' teaching 
Daniel's teaching about the end times. Live as if it could happen in your generation. Why? Because it could happen in your generation. So you've got the specific references that apply to Jerusalem. You've got the universalistic storms. And then the last references seem to be to an apocalyptic storm. Specific, universalistic, and apocalyptic. Jesus says, don't allow these other storms that take place, these other difficulties to take place. And he's not trying to downplay them. He's not trying to say they're not painful. They're obviously incredible, incredibly painful in terms of the way he describes them, whether for Jerusalem or for the world as a whole. But he's trying to say, don't let those things, as bad as they are, divert your attention from a final storm that is coming. Don't think that they are the final storm. And don't be deceived. Verse 8, that's where he starts off. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. You could be led astray. People are led astray all the time by people proclaiming, I'm the one, by people saying, the time is near, the time is now. But there's an even more insidious way of being led astray that is at the end of this. You could be led astray by the delay of God and just say, it's never going to happen. Things are just going to keep going on. Don't be deceived, Jesus says. I want you to know, I want you to understand there is, in fact, a final storm that is coming. And it will come, and it will be final, terrible, awful, climactic, and it will also be merciful. At least it will be merciful for the people of God. But of course, whether you're reading in the book of Daniel or whether you're reading in the book of Luke or any place else, what's the question? When? Even with all that said, and even with all that Jesus just said, when, Jesus, when is it going to take place? Tell us the time. What are the signs about when this will take place? Well, there are two, I think, comments that we ought to make on two verses in here that are often discussed. The, the, the first is at the end of verse 24, when Jesus refers, until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What does that mean? What, what, what is that reference to? There are a million interpretations for these things. I'm just going to give you real quickly what mine is. That is to say, until the full number of God's people have been gathered together. That's how long, that's what it's going to go on, until the full number of people are gathered together. In this case, referring to the Gentiles, but if you flip it over to Romans chapter 11, refer referring to all Israel as well. All Israel, all the Gentiles, when all of those people, my people, are gathered together, that's when the end will come. Next verse that is uh, difficult and subject to lots of interpretation regarding the time is found in 31 to 32. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. This generation will not pass away. What does that mean? A, it could mean that Jesus was wrong that Jesus thought that the end was coming within a relatively short time, and he was mistaken about when the time was actually coming. That doesn't really make a lot of sense for a variety of reasons, amongst which is the fact that Luke's writing after the event. So Luke certainly could have corrected Jesus if Jesus was wrong and that were Luke's intention to get him 
straighten out a little bit in terms of what he said. So it, it doesn't mean that Jesus is wrong. A lot of people take this generation likewise to say that this is an application specifically to Jerusalem. So this generation, those of you who will still be living at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, are going to see that. That's probably not, it's possible, it's probably not because that would be a pretty long generation as generations were thought of at that particular time. And one doesn't get the sense that this is the, the reference for this generation. The third way, and there are, there are like plenty more that I'm not going to go into, but this is the one that seems compelling to me. If you look at the Gospel of Luke, this phrase, this generation, is used a number of times in the Gospel of Luke. It's used all over the place, but generally speaking, it refers to people who are in opposition to Jesus. This generation seeks a sign. This evil generation. This generation refers to people opposed to the teaching of Jesus, and so what I think Jesus is saying here is that this generation, that is to say, all of these people who have just rejected me, and that's what we've been talking about, his rejection at the temple, you're always going to have them with you. This generation will not pass away until those things take place. You're always going to have the people opposed. The storm coming. But in the midst of the storm, and here I'm going to be much briefer than I was in describing the storm, Jesus provides for us anchors. I think I have talked before in a sermon about sea anchors. Sea anchors are something that in a storm, a great sailing ship would have dragged behind them to slow their progress down. It could have been a sail in the water. It could have been a funnel-like thing in the water, but something that would slow down the progress of the ship to keep them safe. And Jesus has provided anchors in the midst of the coming storm. And I don't have time, but I'll, I'll just, I'll at least say them. The first anchor is the name of Jesus. They're going to do this all to you by, because of the name of Jesus, for my name's sake, for my name's sake. The anchor that we have is the name of Jesus Christ. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. That's what we were singing before. Abby was baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus Christ is an anchor in the midst of the storms of the world. Secondly, anchor that is provided by Jesus is your eternal security. Did you catch this when I was reading verse 16 through uh, 19 or so? You'll be delivered up by your parents, by those who are closest to you. Some of you they'll put to death. You'll be hated for all for my name's sake. And verse 18, but not a hair of your head will perish. Not a hair of your head will perish, but some of you will be put to death. And you kind of look at that and go, okay, wait a minute now. What, what are we talking about here? Hairs perish all the time, right? I mean, my, my hairs perish every day. Right, right? Hairs perish. You know, you get out of the shower, you get older, and all of a sudden you know, there's hairs laying there. They're dead hairs or soon to be dead hairs. They turn gray. Hairs perish. So what is Jesus talking about here to say that you might be killed, but at the same time none of your hairs on your head are going to perish? Well, what Jesus is clearly referring to is he's talking about a life beyond this life, and he's talking about a security that is not a security that belongs to this world, but it is our eternal security. He's just been talking to the Sadducees who deny the resurrection and telling them, uh-uh, I'm God of the living. My Father is God of the living. He's not God of the dead. 
And so Jesus is in effect saying that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. They may separate your head. Your hair might get scalped. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Our hairs are number, which is to say God cares for it. He cares for the details of our body. He cares for the details of our soul, and He preserves them. And therefore, in that day, in the dread day of the return of Jesus Christ, we can look at it in view of verse 28 as our redemption drawing near. Not just a day to be afraid of, but as our redemption drawing near. The third anchor is found for us in verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There is the anchor for our soul. The Word of God stands. In the midst of all of the tumult, the Word of God stands. Jesus is declaring, He's making a prophetic declaration of what will take place, and He is a trustworthy prophet. And He says, you want an anchor? Anchor yourself in this Word. This word that I'm giving to you, this word that I has given, have given to you, because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And finally, the hope of the triumph of Jesus Christ is the final anchor. He comes on the clouds with power and with glory. The disciples are about to get a witness to that. They're about to see Jesus Christ risen from the dead, crucified, killed, risen from the dead. They are then going to see the ascension of Jesus Christ, to watch Jesus go up into heaven. And then the third thing that they're going to see is the descending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And Jesus is going to come. Remember, that's what the angel says. In the same way that you saw him depart, he's also going to return in that way with power and with glory. Jesus had said the first time he was in the temple, chasing people out, destroy this temple. Throw the stones all over the place. Three days I'll raise it up again. Those are anchors force in the midst of the storm. But the fact that the storm is coming is not a, a call for us to go in the caves and to hide until it passes, but rather this ends up being a call to action because the storm is coming. With these anchors, we go into action. And again, I, I won't, I promise, I'll just list some of these. I mean, the actions are awareness. You have to know what's going on. You have to know what the Word of God says. The action that Jesus talks about is testifying, is giving testimony when you are taken before the courts, when you are dragged before the courts with His promise that His words will be yours. Endurance, you are called to. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Flight, flight doesn't sound like one that we should apply. We should fight rather than flee, but not necessarily so. Jesus commands those who are in Jerusalem in that day, listen, get out of there. Listen to my words. Leave town. And in the book of Acts, we'll see people from Jerusalem doing just that, resulting in the church growing around the area. We'll see Paul sometimes fleeing out of cities where he's being persecuted, being let down in a basket over the wall of a city. And we see commands then throughout Scripture, flee sexual immorality, flee youthful passions, flee idolatry. There's a time to flee, a time to run. 
That's an action we can take. And then there's a time when the day is coming to straighten up, raise our heads. But the bottom line application is this. The bottom line one is at the end. It's in verse 34. Watch. Stay awake and pray. This, by the way, is the exact same thing that Jesus is going to say to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray. That's the application of all that he has just said. Be steadfast, watch for me, and pray in the meantime. Don't let your hearts become weighed down because your hearts can become weighed down by drunkenness, by dissipation. Dissipation is a weird word. Uh, I, don't, I don't hear anyone use the word dissipation uh, in regular speech. The Greek here, the Greek is to have your head tossed about. Head tossed is dissipation. It's a picture of drunkenness, of, of giddiness when your head is a little bit lightheaded, and of headaches as a result of the drunkenness. Don't get drunk. Now, you can sit here and say, well, we're pretty respectable people sitting here in the church. Thanks very much. Okay, got it. I won't get drunk. The other warning, though, that he gives hits us all right where we live is, is, is he says, listen, don't let your hearts become distracted by the cares of the world. Drunkenness is one thing. It's pretty obvious. You know it. You know when you've done it. You know when you're about to do it. It's obvious. What is not so obvious is the incredible power of the cares of the world. That's the thing. That's the thing that can take your eyes off the prize. And that's probably where, for most of you, the temptation lies most. It is just to get caught up in the things of this world, to caught up, get caught up in the things that need to be done. Young families, you're at the heart of it. Why? Because you've got a million things going on in your lives. You've got a million things that you're doing. You've got a schedule you've got to keep. You've got meetings you've got to get to. You've got practices you've got to get the kids to. Who's going to do that? And how are we going to get food in the meantime? It is the cares of, the, of this world, of this life, that can, most of all, cause your eyes to come off of the horizon. And Jesus says, don't let that happen. Don't let it happen. Don't let the things that you're going through every day give you that distraction. You cannot, you cannot continue on with business as usual. It can't just be life as normal. Now, we've got a lot of things to do. Recognize daily cares and other parts of the Scripture affirm our necessity of work, the goodness of leisure, the creation that God has given. But we're not going to look at all those. What, what we have to see is that we cannot approach those things in the same way that the world does. For the world, that is all they've got. They cling to gilded toys of dust. And that's all they are. They are stones that are going to be overturned. For us, we've got to do those things. And we can do them to God's glory the best we can do them but with our eyes out there. Because our eyes have to look to the horizon, to the return of Jesus Christ, or else you will never have time to pray. Do you know why? Because there are a thousand other things you've got to do. 
There are a hundred other things that are more productive in your life than praying, or at least so it seems, if you're focused on the things of this world. You will not watch and pray unless you keep your eyes outward. Stay awake. And that way, when the day comes, it doesn't fall on you like a trap. It'll come. It'll either be for you a time when you see redemption drawing nigh or it'll fall on you like a trap. Why? Because you got caught up in life. You got caught up in things that at the end of that day won't matter. What will matter is a faith that has been exercised in watching and praying. We have to hear the words of Jesus. The temptations are real. You know it. You feel it in your life. I feel it in mine. If we do it, our eyes will see as they ought to see. Let me pray for us.